2: Where we interview three geopolitical experts on one big issue shaping the news both here and overseas. And I'm your host, Michael Hilliard. Argentina has just sworn in their brand new president. And like every single president spent in the last 40 years before him, he was asked a simple question Will you look to recover the Malvinas Islands, known better to us here in the West as the Falkland Islands? islands that sit just 480 kilometres off the coast of Argentina, but remain a territory of the United Kingdom. And every president over the last 40 years, including the incoming one, has stated unequivocally that yes, they will seek to use the Argentinian armed forces to reverse the defeat of 1982 and bring these South Atlantic territories back under Buenos Aires' control, which of course will always ruffle feathers in the British Foreign Office. Now, if you ask the question who has the right to govern the Falkland Islands, You're going to get a range of responses. Some people might say that Britain owning these islands is an antiquated holdover of a colonial era, whilst others might point to the referendum undertaken on the islands by the population living there that shows massive support for the islands staying within the UK. And others will simply proclaim the old adage that winners write history and the British won the battle in 1982. However, while there has been controversy around who should be governing these islands for years, Argentina has regularly continued to talk about reclamation of the territory, even bringing up the issue with the UN and various Latin American partners, whilst at the same time, the British vowed to defend the islands with the same fervour that they would defend the very shores of Dover itself. So both sides are quickly at an impasse. But both sides also have other things in common as well, as both sides currently have massive financial problems within the military forces, and both sides also having a lot of economic issues closer to home. And whilst the UK's economy is not in the same position Argentina's in, Argentina only has to defend Argentina. The UK has to defend territories right across the globe. And their attention currently is squarely focused on Russia and China, rather than a few territories a few hundred kilometres north of Antarctica. So a lot has changed since the battle was fought in 1982. And with that in mind, let's take a look at hypothetically how the UK would respond if the new incoming Argentinian government actually followed through in their claims and opted for a military reinvasion of the Falkland Islands would the current British garrison on the Falklands be able to hold off whatever Buenos Aires can throw at them or would this additional 40 years of prep time that the Argentinians have had finally have given them enough time to recover from the 80s and carry out a successful invasion of the Falklands well those are some of the questions we're going to be answering here today and to take us through some of the developments in these armies and take us through the myriad of changes between that fateful campaign in 1982 And where we are today, we turn to our first guest.
3: Part one, a crumbling cadaver.
1: It was a massive disaster for the Argentine Navy. It was only in December 1981 that General Galtieri had taken over along with his colleague, Admiral Jorge Anaya, and they both wanted to take the Falkland Islands by force. So by going ahead with that kind of operation, they hadn't expected the British to respond in the way that they did.
2: Tim Fish is a renowned defence analyst and former editor for Shepherd Land Systems. On top of that, he's a former naval reporter for Jane's Information Services, a global open source intelligence company specialising in military, national security, aerospace and transport systems with Tim being one of the most recognized analysts when it comes to Latin American military systems. So we're thrilled to have him on the program today.
1: Even though they had taken the British by surprise with their landings in South Georgia and on the Falklands, they weren't really that prepared for the response.
2: Now, the war in the Falklands is fairly well covered, and there's plenty of great documentaries out there of the events of the conflict. But for anyone who hasn't been closely following South Atlantic politics, let's quickly go over the events of the conflict. And obviously grossly simplifying here, but in 1982 Argentina had a military junta in power, who, because the economy really wasn't great at the time, wanted to retake back some of the islands around Argentina and rally people around a bit of nationalism, with most of these islands around Argentina including the Falklands, the South Georgia and South Sandwich Islands being overseas territories of the UK. Now, just that previous year, the UK Navy had undergone some pretty massive budget cuts right across the service branch. At the time, there was even rumours of talks possibly beginning in the future sometime of a Hong Kong-style solution for the Falkland Islands, that they would be given back to Argentina, but leased back to Britain for 99 years. So, the government of Buenos Aires made the assumption that the UK really didn't care that much about the islands. After all, they're 12,000 kilometres away from Britain, the same distance as London to Jakarta away. And so with the Argentinian Junta, under the impression that the UK would just shrug and let the islands go, would launch an invasion of the Falkland Islands in April of 1982. The Argentines were able to eventually put about 10 to 12,000 men ashore, with the first wave quickly capitulating the UK garrison of under 100 men. But instead of rolling over like the Argentines expected, the UK vowed to take them back. After all, it was an election coming up. The UK would send a naval task force codenamed Operation Corporate, retake the Falkland Islands, with this task force consisting of two carriers, submarines, and various other surface ships. The task force would arrive here in the South Atlantic a few years later, and the two forces would begin to engage in combat, even though war was never officially declared. The Argentinians did manage to do some damage, even firing a French-made XSF missile into the HMS Sheffield, but at the end the UK would sink the Argentine cruiser of the Belgrano and cure quite a lot of the Argentinian air force and naval assets in the area. The British forces would then keep the pressure up here and use its carriers to maintain air superiority over the islands, as well as cut off most supplies coming back into the island. Once secure, the UK would eventually put around 4,000 British SAS, SBS and Royal Marines ashore here in the Falklands. And after a few semi-famous battles like Goose Green and the supply problems really starting to bite on the Argentinian forces, the Argentinians would surrender on the 14th of June, with nearly 700 dead and around 1500 wounded. And Britain would once again raise the Union Jack over Stanley, the capital of the Falkland Islands. So now that we have a general idea of how the first Falkland War went, Tim, can you take us through what the British were up against during this
1: first Falkland War? The Argentine Navy was quite good for a, a mid-sized power. You know, they had an aircraft carrier, the cruiser Belgrano, six destroyers, three corvettes, tankers, amphibious ships, survey ships, and as well as two of their three submarines at their disposal. Across a couple of task forces that were screening the invasion force itself, the Argentine Air Force had about 577 aircraft in total, including some of the ones that we, we kind of know about from the war as being quite famous, such as the A-4 Skyhawks, so 59 of those, about 17 Mirages, 35 Daggers and 71 Pucara fighters, as well as the five Super Eton Dards, the ones that were famous for sinking the Royal Navy ship, the HMS Sheffield with, a, with an Exocet. But these were all these were spread out across spaces in argentina so some of these forces had to be moved and then some of them were based in the falklands after the initial invasion the Argentine forces were, were pretty much decimated during the, the falklands war so it was a pretty much a disaster for the military junta so they they were out of power not long afterwards and the military services were never given the kind of funding or support that that were given beforehand there, there were some Minor additions to the Navy, they got a couple of new submarines and they did get some new frigates as well, just in 1984, 1985 timeframe, but then nothing new was really added to the fleet or to the air force after that. And over the next sort of 30 years, those ships and aircraft received little in the way of upgrades or, or support and have all mostly largely fallen by the wayside.
3: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you.
2: These days, the Argentinian military is really a shadow of its former self, with the Argentinian armed forces now having a yearly budget of just $5 billion, as compared to the UK's $56 billion. And defence spending in Argentina has not been over 1% of GDP since 2003. In fact, as of 2010, the only country in South America it exceeds four percent percentage of GDP spent on defence is Suriname, which should give you an idea on how low defence now sits within the priorities of the Argentinian government. So from a military junta with quite a capable military, why has there been such a massive step back
1: for the Argentinians? I think the Argentine government is must be quite concerned about the impact of, of the military on its civil society. In the wake of the military junta, they weren't that keen on, on providing the military lots of money to allow its forces develop a certain strength to potentially overthrow a civilian government again. That's, that's kind of common across most of South America.
2: But even the military they have is still fairly poorly mismanaged, and this is coming from someone who spends way too much time analysing the militaries of the former Soviet states. As an example, until recently, the Argentinians were spending 80% of their total military budget just on wages, keeping a semi-large professional army going in the country, as opposed to using conscription like most other South American countries do. Which to put it in context, the UK only spends around 35% of its military budget on wages, even though their soldiers are paid far more than the Argentinian ones. What this meant is that there was less than 2% left in the military budget for Argentinian procurements and modernization of their equipment. And with less than 2% left in the budget, it means that most things either fell apart very quickly or became wildly outdated since 1982. So can you take us through why they've chosen to go down that road?
1: It's a sign of militaries that aren't particularly modern that devote most of their budgets to wages 80% is very high but that's not uncommon in certain parts of the world where a military is not necessarily seen as a, a force that's designed to do expeditionary operations or to external threats It's designed as a internal security force or as a way of supporting your own supporters by providing large amounts of money to wages. But with that little amount of funding, it's very difficult to get the latest equipment, to keep the equipment you do have in service. You'd see a gradual atrophying of any capability. So more and more units, whether it's aircraft, ships, or vehicles, you can't replace parts. You have to cannibalize from some vehicles or aircraft to spare parts to support a shrinking operational fleet. So from from maybe having a large fleet of armored vehicles or an Air Force or or Navy with lots of ships, you'd end up having smaller and smaller numbers that can put to sea until you have almost none going to sea or very few able to, to deliver the kind of capabilities that you once had.
2: A pretty good case study of this is the Argentine submarine fleet, which after years of the Argentine Navy slashing their budgets for repair and upkeep of the submarines, meaning we then saw the submarine fleet become overly old and decrepit, which came to a head in 2017 when the San Juan submarine would break open whilst descending, killing all sailors aboard. With the cause being speculated as frankly the hull had undertaken too many dives without repair or refit after these events the remaining two submarines the santa cruz and the salta have both been taken out of operation with their subsequent refitting and repairs then being cancelled after that meaning that argentina now has no submarines in operation which is a pretty big blow to the argentine navy so can you take us through how we arrived at this point
1: the argentine submarine service has been pretty badly hit the the tragedy of 2017 um, when swan san juan was lost in november that year with 44 crew highlights the dangers of submarine operations particularly with older boats that boat was commissioned in 1985 so it is pretty decrepit already and without the funding you do end up with these disasters because if you don't have the adequate levels of support problems will arise but it's such a huge expense that even if they do select a, a new boat provider or a new design either from europe or or from if they want to get secondhand ones from brazil in anticipation of procuring new submarines for that service it would still be a huge cost that they wouldn't be able to sustain probably in the short term with the kind of levels of funding that they have
2: what about the argentine air force how have they fed since 1982
1: the air force in some ways has suffered worse as the air force is down to about 24 a4 fighter hawks coming from a huge fleet of you know 557 aircraft down to just 24 combat aircraft is a huge reduction in capability so they're trying to regenerate their air force and on the 11th of october this year it was approved by the u.s foreign military sales um, office that they could purchase 24 surplus f-16 fighters from the danish air force and they've also i think a week later on the 17th of october it was announced that Argentina will also buy four P3 Orion maritime patrol aircraft from Norway's and that's a renewal of its long-range maritime surveillance capability and provides an anti-submarine warfare capability that it has not had in well over a decade when its previous aircraft retired but that's just an approval so I don't know if or when that contract is is going to be signed the new fighters and the new maritime patrol aircraft will go a long way to re-establishing some kind of capability with the air force and they're also doing other things to upgrade the C-130H transport aircraft and the Embraer EBM, EMB 312 Tucanos. They've got plans to, to purchase more 7, Boeing 737 transport aircraft and as well as a few other lighter aircraft as well. So they seem to be getting the lion's share of, of the funding at the moment.
2: But for now, the Air Force is still nowhere near what it was back in the day, with the latest military balance reports indicating that 100% of the Argentine Air Force is in the obsolescent category. But Argentina does have aspirations to rebuild their forces. So what do you think it would actually take for Argentina to rebuild its forces back to the point it was at before 1982, where they had the capability to do things like naval amphibious operations?
1: When you look at what Argentina did in the Falklands War, their Operation Rosario began with amphibious landings. These were using the Type 42 destroyer Santissimo Trinidad and the amphibious landing ship, as well as being supported by the submarine Santa Fe. They were able to land a relatively small amount of troops, but enough to overcome the limited resistance there was. The screening force that was protecting that, that invasion element included the Air 60 destroyers, three corvettes, they had a tanker out there, survey ships, as well as another submarine out there too. And the Argentine air force also had the super Etendards that were famous for sinking the Royal Navy ship HMS Sheffield with the exocet. So if you were, if they're going to try this again, you'd need a force similar if not larger than that one a much larger amphibious force as well they've only got i think one amphibious ship left which is which is not really an amphibious ship it's actually just a a cargo sort of ship which can only offload equipment in a port so it hasn't got any landing craft or anything that can move onto beaches that presents a massive problem so to to undertake a similar kind of operation you need to get air superiority so that's long-range fighter aircraft you'd need anti-submarine warfare technology to prevent a situation like what happened with submarine conqueror, the British submarine conqueror sinking the Belgrano. So you need to protect the underwater domain. And then on the surface you'd need enough enough ships to create a screening, protect from any Royal Navy ships and and forces that might want to come down. The difficulty with with taking the island this time round is that the British are prepared, they've upgraded all the, the capabilities of the Falkland defences. Uh, the new Mount Pleasant Air Base uh, is quite considerable, there's over a 1,000 troops there. They've got the SkySaver defence system, they've got Typhoon fighter jets operating out of there. They've got a huge intelligence apparatus um, and surveillance apparatus out of there as well. So they'd, they'd see you coming a mile away. So you'd need a, a force size that's considerably larger than the one that completed the 1982 invasion.
2: Which is not great for Argentina when their starting point is way behind, even where they were back in 1982. But if they were to actually take this seriously and go down that road, how long do you think it would take to rebuild their force back to a point where they could carry out an operation like
1: this? You're looking at decades. Even if they devoted all their government expenditure to the military and avoided a revolution, you're still looking at decades to procure carriers to procure the aircraft you want. I mean, if you wanted to get a new aircraft carrier, you could maybe you could get one second hand. But then you need the aircraft to go on it you need to train those service people to, to become proficient in carrier operations you need to get a whole new surface fleet the only new ships they've got are for going to class offshore patrol vessels from france which were delivered over the last four years but they're offshore patrol vessels they're not necessarily combat capable so you need something with anti-submarine warfare capability on anti-air and anti-surface on your surface fleet as well as well as amphibious ships to deliver the kind of capabilities you want onto the islands themselves as well as sustain the kind of attrition that's likely when you get a good response from british submarines british surface ships and british aircraft as well so you need other aircraft that can gain air dominance over the falkland islands and beat the skysaber system as well so those are very expensive modern aircraft you'd need maybe things like the f-35 but that could cause problems if you're doing the F-35 for that purpose. So the difficulty of getting hold of some of this equipment is quite difficult too, because since 1982, the British have had a sanctions rate regime on Argentina, which has limited the extent to which they have been able to modernise in some circumstances. So for example, the Argentines bought five or six super ex-French Air Force 1s, and Navy aircraft back in 2019, with the anticipation that they'd upgrade them, get them serviceable again. And they weren't able to do that largely due to the fact they have not been able to procure the Martin Baker ejector seats that were, that were built by a British company. So you, you, to navigate that kind of sanctions would be, would be quite difficult. If you're building up that kind of level of force as well, that's not gonna go unnoticed. So you'd, you'd get a response from from Britain as well. So even if Argentina was still able to divert all the resources it had nationally to creating a military force capable of doing an invasion.
2: So if the Argentine forces have fallen well behind the British, how are they holding up against other South American states?
1: That's kind of the main issue is that they have also fallen well behind other South American countries as well. Neighboring Chile has been quite good at keeping its naval force in particular up to date. It's got a good relationship with the UK. It's purchased ex Royal Navy vessels, still keeping those in service. It's got programs for new frigates. It's got two Scorpion submarines, which it bought from France in 2005. And it's, it might be looking to get some more. Peru's got a submarine program, a surface combatant program, Brazil is, is by far, in excess of all those other services, they're looking at getting a nuclear submarine and they're getting brand new Scorpene submarines into service as well from France, which they're building in country as well. So that's a whole new capability. They're getting ships from Germany. I think it is a variant Corvette, which they're building in country as well. Uruguay is probably on, a, on similar to Argentina, they, their, their forces exist on a budget of about a million dollars a year in terms of their wages and procurement and venezuela is obviously suffering quite badly as well colombia is, is trying to move ahead with it so argentina's got a long way to come to even get close to to what they're doing and even then maritime security has until recently taken a a, a bit of a back seat in terms of the priorities of, of the government
2: so where do you see the argentine military going in the future do you think that this damage that's been done to the foundations of it can actually be repaired
1: there is some signs of recovery but unless less larger amounts of funding are provided for for, for large scale procurement like 650 million for for 24 uh surplus f-16s then it's going to be piecemeal efforts although well, that- it was announced that there are plans to establish a joint military base in Ushuaia and down in tierra del fuego which is argentina's southernmost city but also the closest by as the, as the bird flies to the Falkland Islands. So that base will go in onto the existing Navy base and now include Air Force and Army units. And that, that's just to highlight the Argentine military's plans to expand its presence and coverage, not just of the South Atlantic, but also the Antarctic. And Ushuaia itself is significant in a location because I've been there myself and, I've, and, it, and it's a city that calls itself the capital of Elas Malvinas, which is the Falkland Islands. So it's still very much something they they have a desire for. But then, when you look at the levels of economic difficulties that, the, that Argentina has, I think inflation's at 138%, with interest rates at 133%, and there are figures that the is due to contract by 2.8% over the next year. So that funding may not materialise in the short term. And um, looking at the Falklands, despite all the rhetoric, that's probably not really a priority for Argentina at the moment. it's still very much something they they have a desire for. But it's being pushed ever more in
3: We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts.
2: So we know that the Argentinian armed forces' gamble against the British took a massive toll on their military, with one military official in Argentina even referring to the Falklands campaign as the root cause of Argentina's military decline. But it isn't just the military open about the shortfalls here in the armed forces, with Argentina's incoming president, Javier Milei stating that Argentina is in no condition to resist attack. So why is it then that there's still so much support within the country to retake the islands, with over 81% of Argentinians surveyed supporting a pursued sovereignty campaign over the Falklands, and the constitution even being amended in 1994 to effectively demand that all subsequent governments commit to the island's recovery? How will the incoming Malay administration marry these two realities? With the military as a former shadow of itself, the British forces on the island have only gotten stronger, and yet they openly talk about recovering these islands. Will Malaya enter the office and simply choose to ignore the islands, or will this be the beginning of the long march to military recovery, the first step on the journey to retaking these islands? Well, to answer that, we'll turn to our second guest.
3: Part 2. From Stability to Stanley
0: The loss of the Falklands Malvinas war had short and long term repercussions for the Argentine military. The most obvious consequence is that they lost the war, including 649 military personnel. They also lost key military equipment, such as the General General Belgrano cruiser, which was sunk by the British submarine conqueror. The other consequence is that the loss of the war brought about the end of the military junta that had ruled since 1976. Now, since the end of the war and the end of the Junta, the Argentine military has a very limited role in Argentine politics, and they have also never tried another coup. During the seven-year rule of the military junta, from 1976 until 1983, there was what we know in Latin America as the Guerra sucia or Dirty War, which was essentially a campaign carried out by the military junta against its own people and in the name of defeating communism, anybody who was believed to be a socialist, communist, Trotskyist will be sent to prison or worse. It is believed that as many as 30,000 people were either murdered or simply disappeared during this period. So this all affected how the military has been shaped and evolved since then.
2: Wilder Alejandro Sanchez is the president of Second Floor Strategies, a defense and security firm in Washington, specializing in procurements and the strategic decision-making within the militaries of Latin America and Central Asia. In addition to this, Alejandro has also written analysis pieces for Breaking Defense, International Policy Digest, and The Diplomat, as well as many more, with Wilder also being a member of the Center for International Maritime Security, specializing in Latin America and the Caribbean nations. So with all this, we're thrilled to have him on the program today.
0: The last time the Argentine was involved in a conflict with, a with another state was over four decades ago. They preferred negotiation, mediation, arbitration to solve their disputes instead of resorting to war. So That's why you have so many countries going to the International Court of Justice, for example, to have the border disputes resolved.
2: So you've done a lot of military analysis on Argentina, but also a lot on Latin America as a whole. In your view, how does the modern Argentine military stack up against most of their regional neighbours?
0: Argentina borders five countries, Uruguay, Brazil, Paraguay, Bolivia, and Chile. Of these five countries, and, and we're can add the United, the United Kingdom to be the Falklands. out of these five South American countries, three of them are quite weak: Uruguay, Paraguay, and Bolivia. They have very weak militaries, even weaker than Argentina. There are no border disputes between Argentina and these countries either, so there's really no reason for any of, for Argentina to feel threatened by any of them. Then we look at Chile and Brazil. Chile does have a stronger military than Argentina. They have flight F-16s, they have Leopard tanks, they have a working submarine fleet. And yes, back in the 1970s, there was the two countries, Argentina and Chile, almost went to war. One curious fact is that if there was ever a conflict between Argentina and Chile, it would be, from an academic point of view, fascinating because the border between these two countries is the Andes Mountains. So most of this hypothetical conflict would be primarily mountain warfare. So I think it would be... A fascinating to monitor if it ever happens.
2: Javier Milei was inaugurated into the presidency of Argentina just this morning, with the man having made comments previously about the military that Argentina could not resist attack from an outside power. Now that the man is in control of the reins of the country, how do you think his administration will look to solve the issues currently present within this military?
0: Javier Millay's defence minister is a man called Luis Petri, if I'm not mistaken. Luis Petri is a lawyer who he has been criticized for having no prior experience in the defense sector. Both Petri and to an extent Millet have said that the Argentine military is not just weak, but also it should not be used for warfare, it should be used for internal security operations, for helping the police patrol the country's borders, to combat drug trafficking, smuggling. Just a couple of days ago, when the Leonel Fernández administration, which is the previous administration before Millet, when they were leaving that office, they issued a new white paper. And According to the statistics by the Ministry of Defense, they bought four offshore patrol vessels from Naval Group, which is a French shipyard, to better patrol their waters to combat IU fishing and, and smuggling and any other types of maritime crimes. They have bought a fleet of twelve, I believe, beachcraft Uron light transport, medium transport aircraft for the army and the air force. They Argentine company in BAP is building a network of radars which are being placed around the country's border, especially the north of the country, in the borders along with uh, Bolivia, Paraguay, Brazil, and Uruguay to better control of Argentine aerospace to crack down on the famous narco planes, which you not know, depart from Paraguay and Bolivia and transport drugs, especially cocaine and marijuana, but especially cocaine, across Argentine airspace to the Atlantic. So it's, it's not that they're, they're particularly weak. But certainly, if you compare it to, well, Brazil or Colombia, or even Chile, they're certainly not as strong.
2: It probably should be said that the Falklands campaign was 41 years ago, and these problems within the Argentine military have existed for years. So why hasn't Buenos Aires attempted to fix or address any of these flaws present within the military structures?
0: This is a very complicated question. I think that it's because the Argentine military doesn't want to change. There are arguments to be made why the Argentine military could trim down, cut a little bit of fat, become a more modern military where the units are maybe smaller, but they're also multi-purposed. But at the same time, the Argentine military is very proud, and they should. They have a very proud history. Every South American, we have learned about the great victories of the Argentine liberator, General José de San Martín, who led an army that beat the Spanish Empire in the 1810s, 1820s, and they still live from this history. Before the Falklands Malvinas War, the Argentine military was one of the most strongest, the most powerful ones in South America. The Argentine Navy even had a carrier, the 25 de Mayo, which which was decommissioned in 1997. Fun fact about the 25 de Mayo, it had previously been called the HMS Venerable, which was a British carrier that took part in World War II in the Pacific Theater. And then it was sold, I believe, to Holland, then it was sold to, to Argentina. So, until the Falklands Malvinas War, that the United Military is very proud of, I did not want to give up this cultural and historic way of thinking that affects some of the decisions that, that they make.
2: So, I understand the pride and the impetus to stick with tradition with the military, and that keeping the military structured the way it is, with its high wages, does keep them simultaneously ill equipped to be able to overthrow the government, and also more loyal to the government as their wages are quite high how does that reality marry up with the constitution's push for the governments to retake the Falklands, or even these statements from various leaders including the incoming Malay that the country should look to bring the Falklands back under the control of Buenos Aires? It's a statement taken by every single government regardless if they're left or right in politics. But yet, no governments are actually taking the necessary steps in order to build the capacity to be able to carry out an operation like this. So knowing the Argentine system, do you actually see this ever happening? that the government will actually launch a second strike for the Falklands? Or in reality, do you think this is all just rhetoric to keep up appearances?
0: No, I don't think it's possible. But I will say that the Falklands Malvinas are a part of the Argentine national identity. And this should be a political suicide for any president of Argentina, minister of Defense, minister of Foreign Affairs, Member of Parliament, any general or admiral to simply say, yeah, we give up. We're not going to get the Argentinas back. We're just going to stop claiming them. We're going to move forward. That's not going to happen. The Argentine military, even when they were so strong 40 years ago, couldn't beat the British which were at the time kind of a little bit weak and they I don't believe that the situation has changed very much that I I wouldn't want to go testing the the British military especially since we got since if I was president of Argentina we got beat sober soundly within living memory I don't think that there's any interest in our war like that
2: so what do you think these policymakers will choose to focus on instead
0: the Argentine economy right now has an inflation for around 140%, 142%. So there are other priorities for the incoming Millet administration. The Argentine military, they need a bigger budget to procure equipment that they more desperately need, not to go and invade a neighboring country, but just for their own internal operations.
2: So the Argentines have no money to play with on this front. And far more pressing issues internally across all sectors of society and the economy to really prioritise an arduous campaign against a far better armed military. However, all these calculations being done, analysing a potential Second Falklands War, are being done based on the currently deployed strength of the UK on the Falkland Islands, with that strength being three radar sites, three SAM batteries, a company of UK soldiers, and a group of local armed volunteers, as well as a great bunch of aircraft on the airfield there, and a much, 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 much better supply infrastructure in place than what was available to the British defenders back in 1982. But whilst that might sound great to the average punter, it might actually sound infuriating to the average defence economist or accountant, as the UK is currently in a pretty tough financial spot, and that's a lot of expensive military hardware just sitting there to protect against a country that has practically no invasion capability left. All of this coming at a period when cost of living is through the roof, poverty is at record levels, and the Ministry of Defence is screaming out that they're suffering from a whole bunch of shortfalls wide across the services, particularly if you're off-the-shelf items like javelins, laws, and marine patrollers. Then when you factor in the defence budgets are usually pretty much tied to how well the country's doing GDP-wise. And you realize that the UK has watched FDI drop by nearly 30% since 2016, and that current inflation is at 6.7%, British defense officials are now regularly raising the alarm stating that the government is going to have to make some very tough decisions in the near future regarding which capabilities within the British Armed Forces they're going to roll back, all of which may seriously change the calculations down here in the South Atlantic. So with Argentina starting to begin the rebuild phase of their forces, and the UK likely needing to restructure much of theirs, how would this impact a potential second conflict here in the South Atlantic? In the short to medium term, is the British position here as unbeatable, as many people assume it is? Well, to answer that we turn to our final guest.
3: Part three, from Stanley to scarcity.
4: I think the biggest lesson was probably diplomatic rather than military. The lesson was don't send the wrong signals. Don't give the impression that you are happy to do one thing whilst not with the other. And that was the fact that the government didn't seem to be joined up in terms of what it was thinking. Because if you recall, back in the day, in early 82, the machinery of government, the foreign office and so on, had their view that the Falklands were probably not overly important. And for the previous years, they'd been thinking that and messaging as well, not necessarily explicitly, but uh, there was some undercurrents of we're not overly uh, interested in the Falklands anymore, it's costing us too much money, etc., Uh, But they hadn't tested that with the military. And so when the First Sea Lord uh, talks to the then Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, and says, well, you, you haven't really got a choice, you've got to retake them. And yes, we've got the capability. I think the other side of the government had probably not really factored that in. So make sure that when you're thinking of something from a foreign policy perspective, don't exclude the military.
2: Kevin Fleming is a former Royal Navy officer of 34 years, and the UK's former defence attaché to de Brazil, including the military education centres and the Brazilian Superior War College. Before that, he was the director of the Royal Navy's division in the UK Defence Academy responsible for the development of command and staff skills, as well as the head of strategy in the Centre for Defence Leadership and Management, facilitating the development of the UK's senior military and civil service leaders. Today, he's a visiting senior research fellow at the Corbett Centre at King's College in London, specialising in military defence issues surrounding international maritime strategy and security. So we're thrilled to have him on the program today.
4: One of the attributes of the maritime environment is you can travel at 15, 20 knots for 24 hours a day. You don't have to go via airfields and stuff like that. But I think the capabilities today are more agile. The routes and the methods of logistic supply and resupply and so on are very well-founded, very capable. A uh, bridge and obviously with the heavier stuff, the sea side of uh, logistics is much more capable of scale. But of course, I would argue that 1982 came as a great surprise, whereas today there is a lot more focus on what is going on down in the South Atlantic and elsewhere around the world. So I think the warning signs would be such that a resupply or build-up forces of weapons ammunition all that sort of stuff that you need for what will be a defensive campaign rather than an offensive if it did occur would be in place much before any military action took place and that in itself could act as a further deterrent
2: so it's no secret that these deployments and infrastructure that's been built down here is and has been quite expensive for the uk over the years so to pose the question that i'm sure gets asked all the time around this issue what does the UK get out of spending this money and being stationed down here in the South Atlantic?
4: The people in the Falklands, they're British. They voted overwhelmingly about 10 years ago to remain British. Uh, and therefore, it's our responsibility, our government's responsibility to protect them. But that protection has got to be done in an appropriate manner. So I think what the UK government, the MOD and, and the Foreign Office aim for to act as the deterrent to Argentina or, or other countries around the world who might think of taking another overseas territory
2: with the results of that election being that 99.8 percent of falkland islands residents voted to remain as part of the uk and only three ballots cast opting to join argentina so i assume everyone on the islands is probably trying to figure out who those three are but the biggest change in the uk's defense capabilities around the falklands outside of the much higher forward deployed presence on the islands is the build-up of facilities on ascension island a small island in the middle of the Atlantic, about 3000km west off the coast of Angola, and roughly about halfway between the UK and the Falklands. And with these facilities here on Ascension, it means that the UK has the capability to bring an entire additional company onto the Falkland Islands within 48 hours, with the added advantage of them being able to bring additional companies onto the Falklands every single day after that, which would make it very difficult for Argentina to ever be able to conquer the island most British defence commentators point to the upgrading of the island's facilities not just as a bolstering of supply capability for the Falklands, but also that it would give the UK capabilities to launch those planes westward instead from Ascension toward the British territories in the Caribbean. That Ascension would play a key part if someone like Venezuela tried to seize a British overseas territory in the region. What would be your reading on that?
4: But yeah, the Ascensions, the the runway, for example, has been upgraded relatively recently. So I think it's a very well-founded part of the air bridge. But of course, as you've identified, it doesn't just focus on the falcons, it largely does. But there's other opportunities. It's not very far from West Africa where there's quite a lot of instability. But focusing on British overseas territories in the Caribbean, it could be used there. But I would imagine that, again, it would depend on the political situation at the time. But our our neighbours of the Caribbean, the United States, would likely be very supportive of Any defensive military operation that the UK had to get involved in as a result of one of their overseas territories being threatened in the Caribbean. So I think the US would be a key part of that. And there are other um, South American allies that could perhaps step up and support us. So whether the essential would be used for that? Yes, possibly. It's it's an option. Uh, And when you're trying to resupply at scale quickly, you will use all the options that you can.
2: All of this is quite expensive to maintain, though. And the UK MOD is running up against some pretty heavy cuts they have to make because of inflation and the increasing capital expenditure, with both of these really beginning to eat up large parts of the UK defence budget. Now, Sunak has talked about maintaining Liz Truss's proposed 3% of GDP spend on defence, whilst other members of his party like Hunt have talked about lowering that to 2%. But both of these would still be far behind the rate of relative inflation, meaning that in real terms, there are going to be cuts required in the MOD budget. So where do you think the ministry will look to make those cuts? Do you think they will look at cutting facilities like the Falklands?
4: the challenge of the defence budget, defence inflation, which always runs much higher than the real inflation. By its very nature, if you want to stay at the, the cutting edge of technology, then you're at the, the bleeding edge of technology and therefore you are investing money that has much more risk attached to it. So there's always going to be a higher level of defence inflation. So two or three percent, particularly when you think about what, what real life inflation is like these days, just doesn't get anywhere near uh, where it needs to be. And so the UK Ministry of Defence is going to have to take some pretty tough decisions about what capabilities it no longer can afford. And that's something that I, certainly over my time in the Royal Navy working around defence is decisions that they've really avoided and they've just sliced and sliced to, to try to keep as many or to keep a full spectrum capability within the, the British military and the armed forces. But I think there will be a time where perhaps some capabilities that we currently have will be taken away entirely and we'll need to focus on what we add most value to rather than trying to be everything for everyone. One of the largest changes over the last 30 years has been pretty much every defence review that's occurred, be they the small ones or the the strategic ones, has focused on the fact that we'll never fight alone. And obviously the Falklands, we did. That was the last time, and I suspect it might be the last time in the current sort of world order. We always expect to fight with, with allies and NATO being the primary one. So I think the government will need to make some difficult decisions through the Ministry of Defence, and then the defence leaders, so the armed forces of the, the First Sea Lords, Chief of General Staff, Chief of the Air Staff, and STRATCOM will have to make their decisions about what they stop spending money on. I don't, for a minute, think the Falklands will not re- retain a military garrison down there.
2: Well, I think that brings us to our main question here. How likely do you think a second invasion of the Falklands is from Argentina?
4: I think the likelihood of Argentina invading the Falklands or even having the intention to invade the Falklands is extremely remote. Certainly not within my lifetime, I don't think, and I would argue that we're talking possibly not in this century in terms of the their willingness and ability to invade the islands. Their capability is extremely low at the moment their economy is challenged, I think would be a it's probably a, a polite statement, but it is at the moment. They're going through huge political change with their new president. The backdrop of Argentinian politics or South American politics, or you could argue politics in general these days, is going from one side to the other. That stymies the ability of many nations to think properly strategically about they want to what they want to achieve. And the world has changed quite a bit in terms of the longevity and the long term views of governments, uh, and very often they're looking at the short term for votes, if you you want to boil it right down to that. Uh, But people want to see change, they want to see improvements, and they want to see it quickly. And in order to do that, that uh, is not necessarily congruent with building up a military that would have the capability to invade the Falkland
2: Islands. But how serious is this recognition, though? If a second Falklands conflict were to break out, would we expect most of Latin America to back Argentina this time, Or is this recognition here more rhetoric than anything else?
4: The majority of South American military that I spoke to in my time down in Brazil were sympathetic to Argentina just because of the geography. It to them makes no sense that it's part of the UK. Uh, However, when you asked them the same question about French Guiana, there was no sort of answer. So it's a bit of an inconsistent view. And I think that's because the Argentinians make such a fuss of all of this, every opportunity they have in the UN or elsewhere. And so it's uppermost in the minds of many. I used to have conversations where they would refer to them as the Malvinas and then apologise for not calling them the Falklands. And I said, if you want to call them the Malvinas, I'm not bothered. Uh, But at the end of the day, just remember who they voted to remain with. And so that was the self-determination piece, which is very difficult to argue against in any democratically founded nation, be it in Latin America or elsewhere. But I do think the tensions and the difficulties and the challenges that I lived through them at each turn of when UK military were getting involved in the South Atlantic for whatever reason, be it exercises, be it just passing through and so on, there was always a tension whenever a British aircraft, the Royal Air Force aircraft or a Royal Navy warship or auxiliary came into brazil there was always the challenge of has it been or is it going to the falklands and that that played out in the diplomatic clearances and so on
2: so with latin america largely sticking with the status quo offering very little direct threat to the islands themselves do you expect britain to continue to take the defense of the falklands as seriously as they do do you think they will continue with the expense and upkeep of these islands and do whatever they can to remain a major power down here in the south atlantic
4: uh, yes, I do, because I see the UK being a, a major player participant in all corners of the world where we have the capability and the, and the capacity to do it. And whilst there are many who would say that the UK is not our business to get involved in things that are, you know, thousands and t- um, tens of thousands of miles away or thousands of miles away. I don't agree with that. I think we've got a lot to offer from the way we think. Our history, we've learned a lot from history. We've made mistakes, but we've also made some good decisions. So I think the the international community without the UK involved will be weaker for it. I'm not saying we're the only ones that can do this, clearly not. But I think we'll always contribute where we have the capacity and the capability to do so. And in the South Atlantic, I imagine that will carry on for the foreseeable future.
2: There's a pretty famous saying in macroeconomics, that around the globe, there are four types of economies, developed, developing, Japan, and Argentina. Japan due to the high output and low stagnant inflation, and Argentina because it's been an economic catastrophe for decades now, described to me years ago as a corpse in a tuxedo. And yep, it still hobbles on. But when it comes to the Falklands, that standard temporary solutions and rhetoric just aren't enough to be able to dislodge what the British have here on the islands and each administration would be forced to undergo either massive military rearmament programs, or simply kick the can down the road. And because of which, these islands have been a thorn in the side of both British and Argentinian politicians for over four decades now. As for the British, these islands very much add to the already cumbersome defence burden, right at a time when every dollar really counts. For Argentina, these islands keep these sanctions going, and prevent the Argentinian military from ever being able to properly repair and refit most of its stock. However, most of the experts on this subject would expect that these islands have been, and always will be, just contested. That, while neither side likes the status quo, neither side likes what change would entail either. Now, without giving personal opinions here on who has the better claim of the islands, Only one thing that remains very clear is that behind closed doors, neither country is actually likely seeking to mount any sort of strategic naval campaign here in the South Atlantic. Whilst 1982 was never the high watermark for the UK Navy, the Royal Navy has also seen better days than what it has now. As after decades of under resourcing by each government and failed UK defence projects, like the £607 million spent to design a new IFV that never went into production, there are various sections and parts of the UK Armed Forces which have been unfortunately hollowed out over time. However, what the British have to deal with is still eons ahead of what the opposite side has to deal with. As these days, the Argentinian Navy can mostly be characterized as old 1980s leftovers. Well, the Navy that hasn't already been decommissioned, that is. This is a Navy that has no submarine capacity at the moment. And even if they were to look to refit or buy new submarines to, to remedy that problem, it's definitely not a certainty they'd have the money to upkeep those submarines in the future. So both sides have an advantage in reaching a sort of gentleman's agreement to keep this conflict to talks and rhetoric, because talks and rhetoric are much cheaper than guns and bombs. And despite what every Argentinian politician, general, press officer, UN official, or even the very constitution itself say, there's likely very little chance that we'll see Argentina recovering the Malvinas anytime soon. Thank you so much for checking out the show this week. We always love doing these wargaming episodes. It's always really fun to look at the technical aspects of some of these conflicts. So as you might have heard, there is big news here at the show. Some of you might have already seen it, some of you might have not, but this week was a big week for all the team here as we launched our brand new sister channel in partnership with our friends over at Economics Explained called Context Matters. The show being all the same straightforward data-driven geopolitical analysis except now with maps, videos, animations, and even a cheeky Simpsons gag here or two. We've been pulling this together for a few months now, and we are absolutely over the moon to finally be releasing it and getting this out to everyone. So if you like what we do here at the program, both myself and everyone involved with the program, we would be incredibly appreciative if you could take a minute to head over to the Context Matters YouTube channel, give it a like and a subscribe, or even check out our video or two. As if you like what we do here, I'm pretty sure you might enjoy what we do over there. As I said, this has been a long time in the works, and I am genuinely thrilled to be able to bring this content to you guys on top of what we do here with the regular Redline show. That rather than having to pick between short animated videos and long in-depth videos, we finally have the capacity to be doing both. So for now, keep your eye out for that one, as we'll be releasing more and more content for both channels coming up. And if you want to be made aware of when we put that content out, you can find all of our links and info on Twitter, Reddit, Blue Sky, Mastodon, Threads, Instagram, Facebook, Discord, and TikTok on the handle at the Red Line Pod. Or if you're keen to follow me on Twitter, I'm on the handle at MichaelEat Oz, Oz is in Australia. This show is completely funded by our amazing Patreons, who donate a small amount of money each month to help myself and the team keep the show going. And speaking of amazing Patreons, this week I'd like to thank Laura Keane Morris, Ben Hobbs, Hansen, Todd Cottle, and Megan Sidlutsky, with the latest patrons to sign up as of time of recording. This show is only possible with the support of listeners like these guys, and we cannot thank them enough for all their support of the show. So if you feel you could spare a couple of dollars and want special access to things like transcripts, as well as content like our recent workshop unpacking the Taiwan invasion plans, in a full presentation with spreadsheets and diagrams, or even this week's workshop giving a full rundown and analysis of Uzbekistan's armed forces, you can sign up to our Patreon today, as we greatly appreciate it. But for now, this episode, Wargaming a Second Falklands War, is all thanks to you guys. As usual, here are our three book recommendations. The first is The Battle for the Falklands by Max Hastings and Simon Jenkins, for a great historical recounting of the events of the campaign. The second is The Logistics of the Falklands War, a case study in expeditionary warfare by Kenneth L. Pervratzky, for a more technical look at the conflict. And the third is The Argentine Economy by Aldo Ferro, for a look at the economic fumbles that have brought the country to where it is today. I want to thank this week's guests, Tim Fish, Wilder Alejandro Sanchez, and Kevin Fleming. All three of you were absolutely superb for this episode. And I also want to thank my staff, starting with the primary researchers of this piece. Those being Scott Missler Ferguson, Nick McNally, Raoul Devanarayanan, Robbie Sutton, Cameron Gale, and Lorenz Van Kierbilk. These wargaming episodes are always a lot of technical work to really make sure we're certain of the outcome here. So it does take a lot of effort to pull these ones together. But as I said before, we really do enjoy doing these ones. On top of them, I'd also like to thank the rest of my staff, being Cameron Gale, the producer, Perry Grace, Daniela Javella, Genevieve Doddle and May, Nate Ostilla, Nick McNally, Sean Cotter Isaac Gibbs, Ahmad Al Ahmad, Andrew Garbery, Scott Missler Ferguson, Jemima Pentreath, Ben Butter, Mason Wise, Gabriel Lane, Lorenz Van Kierbilk, and Robbie Sutton, our research assistants and writers, Jamie Tanno, our media director, Raul Devanarayanan, our OSIN analyst, Francis Lee, chair director of Breaking News, Mark Spencer, our second voiceover artist, Kashyap Maheshwari from our online team, Joe Hawthorne, our audio cleaner, Marissa Rafter, our videographer, and Nick Much our field correspondent. This is coming up to the second to last episode of the year, and it's been an amazing year to be working with this team, so I can't thank him enough for everything. The Red Line will be back in another fortnight, with another international episode. Until then, thank you for listening, and good night. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are solely
3: those of Michael our guests, and the Redline Podcast. They do not represent any government or organization and are solely our own. For more information, please visit theredlinepodcast.com.